This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, December the 20th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. For viewers at home with keen eyesight, you will notice that Dave Brown is a bit unshaven today. When you have white hair and a white beard and you're overweight, this is the time of the season to put on a little bit of facial hair. You know, that's how you're popular at Christmas parties. Coming up on the show today, here's a premise for you to consider. Does it seem like big tech companies are more focused on accessibility than other industries? Denny Boudreau will weigh in with his thoughts on the premise and I get the feeling he's not gonna agree. And the COP28 climate conference took place earlier this month in Dubai. Journalist Ernest Kopecky shares his takeaways. That and a little bit of Christmas talk on the show. That's going to be fun. A couple events going on in the Vancouver area with community reporter Amy Amanti. There's a lot coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But let's begin with the top story of the day. And I am so, so sorry, but American politics is the top story. And it's not just American politics, but former President Donald Trump. The Colorado Supreme Court has banned former President Trump from the state's primary ballots under the Constitution's Insurrection Clause. Norman Hall explains. The ruling marks the first time in history that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has been used to disqualify a presidential candidate. Colorado's highest court overturned a ruling from a district court judge who found that Trump incited an insurrection for his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. But that judge said Trump could not be barred from the ballot because it was unclear that the provision was intended to cover the presidency. The court stayed its decision until January 4th or until the U.S. Supreme Court rules on the case. I, Norman Hall. A few candidates in the Republican primary field weighed in on the court's decision. Here's Chris Christie. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. And here's Nikki Haley. I don't think Donald Trump needs to be president. I think I need to be president. I think that's good for the country. But I will beat him fair and square. We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to have to make these decisions. Just an FYI here, a little bit of context. In the Republican primary uh, polling data going on right now, Donald Trump has uh, mostly across the board a 30-plus point lead over all the other candidates. So uh, it might be only the court that can stop him. I don't think it's either of those candidates. But I do think in both cases, both those candidates raised an interesting point, right? Maybe if you take Donald Trump's name out of this, how much should courts be getting involved in whether or not somebody can run for political office? I'm just going to leave that question for you to ponder, but I do think it's an inter interesting one. Perhaps leave Donald Trump's name out of it and just consider the question more from a philosophical point of view. 
Okay, we've eaten our vegetables together. Now we can have our desserts. Following up on yesterday's inflation numbers. Okay, monetary policy, not quite dessert just yet. A reminder that prices went up 3.1% year over year in November. Low gasoline prices were one of the elements that put downward pressure on that number. Housing and food continue to put upward pressure on the number. CIBC economist Andrew Grantham reflects on how that might influence policy at the Bank of Canada. You know, financial markets were starting to price in interest rate cuts as early as March. We always thought that was a little bit premature given where the inflation numbers were. Um, so it doesn't change anything in terms of our expectations that the first cut will come in June. And there's some new polling data available about a national pharmacare plan. Laura Osman runs those numbers. Only 18% of those surveyed believe the government should spend additional money on a new universal single-payer drug plan when compared to other health care priorities. But while there doesn't seem to be overwhelming support for the program, there was little in the way of outright opposition either, with only 17% saying pharmacare should not be a priority. The Liberals promised to pass pharmacare legislation by the end of 2023. But the Liberals and the NDP couldn't agree on the language in the bill, and they've agreed to move to a new March 1st deadline. Laura Osman, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Okay, there's politics and economics. I promised you dessert. I did. I promised you dessert. Here's the actual dessert. Something a little bit more fun. South Lake Tahoe, California, ran a contest to name 10 snowplows. Chuck Sievertson clears the way for this ponderful report. Naturally, with a snowplow named Sled Zeppelin, other top monikers, Austin Plowers. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Cleopatra, Scoop Dog, Sleetwood Mac. Several from Star Wars, Snowbaka, Darth Blader, and Snowbee Juan Kenobi. Truly out of this world at numero uno. I'm the dude. The Big Laplowski. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. All right. You know, there was a lot of production in there. Someone give Chuck Sievertson a Pulitzer Prize for that 30-second voicer. Like, that's top tier. But I think because there was so much production, and maybe because you giggled a little bit along the way like I did, Parker, let's cue that up one more time. Let's rack that and play it again. The forest will echo in laughter. Naturally, with a snowplow named Sled Zeppelin, other top monikers, Austin Plowers. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Cleopatra, Scoop Dog, Sleetwood Mac. Several from Star Wars, Snowbaka, Darth Blader, and Snowbee Juan Kenobi. Truly out of this world at numero uno. I'm the dude. The Big Laplowski. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. And this is why people don't like sitting next to me at dinner parties, because all I want to do is dad jokes and puns. Chuck Sievertson, no crumbs for you, sir. You crushed that report. Well done. And uh, the big Laplowski, come on. Come on. I love that we've evolved beyond uh, naming icebreakers Bodie McBoatface. It's good to know the public can indeed be trusted. Speaking of the public being trusted, let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday, you were asked, Elon Musk wants to open his own school in Texas. Would you attend a school run by a celebrity? 
By the way, I'm surprised that none of the Muscovites got involved uh, in this poll. Maybe it was suppressed on Twitter. But 0% of you said yes, 100% of you said no. Leona wrote in here looking for some clarification. Uh, we set this up on air, but I guess it didn't quite trickle into the social media world. Do you mean that the celebrity is actively running the school, or is it just the person's name who appears? For the former, probably not. For the latter, yeah, why not? So that's super cool that folks got involved there at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. Maybe that's why it didn't get traction, because I'm refusing to acknowledge uh, Elon Musk changing the pronouns of Twitter to X. So there it is. That could be the way that it's going. Today's Daily Poll is all about a topic that Denis Boudreaux and I are about to talk about, whether or not big tech is an accessibility ally? And that's the generalized question that I'm posing to you, that I'm going to pose to Laura Bain and Elizabeth Moeller. In general, would you say that big technology companies are allies when it comes to accessibility? Yes or no? Laura Bain, I know you hate it when I put these forced binary questions out there, but generally speaking, would you say that big tech is an ally to the disability community? It can be. <laughs> There's a good point. I like that. I like that. I like that. Um, so, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I, I'll try to pick a box here, but I think that a lot of times, you know, disability advocates are actually in the background kind of driving that work. I was thinking about the example with Netflix and people might think, oh, they're a great ally. They have so much audio described content. But of course that happened because people with disabilities, you know, filed a lawsuit against them, right? Um, so that's not really being an ally. And, you know, Apple, their universal design, I don't know what drove that. I'd be very curious to learn that story. Um, you know, and I think sometimes I was thinking about Amazon, uh, how helpful that is for me, like having things delivered to my house, but that's completely like a happy accident. It's not that Amazon set out to uh, accommodate people with disabilities. So I want to be really positive and say that, yes, uh, tech companies are allies, but I think a lot of times it's either because there is either an individual person or a group of disability advocates kind of driving that, or that it's something that sort of just happened by chance. Um, you know, thinking about this word ally, of course, uh, is another area we yes, could get into yes. and what that really means. I, I think it has something to do with using your privilege. Um, and I'm not sure that that's, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I think if you force me into a binary, I'm going to say no, but maybe and they can be and sometimes they are, but usually not like they're usually not the driving force behind it. Laura, I had a sense that the word ally was actually going to come up in this conversation as something worth quibbling with or thinking about a definition, definition, because I actually chose that word very particularly, because it's one thing to say, do big tech companies serve the needs of people with disabilities? Mm -hmm. And in general, they certainly do, right? There's a lot of accessibility features when you look at a lot of mainstream technology. But like you said, if you have to be advocated into dust before you become an ally, does that truly make you an ally? Are you, are you using your power and your privilege and your capacity to assist the people with disabilities, to be someone who's in their corner and fighting for them, or do you just want their money? <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Um, and yeah, I agree that unpacking this idea of allyship. And it's also difficult when you're talking about big tech, because of course, um, there's this entity of the corporation, but it's made up of individual people. So I'm sure there are people within that corporation that are allies to people mm -hmm. with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they very much could be um, behind driving that force. Like, um, so... It's complex. I, I guess, you know, as we talk about it, maybe I'm coming around to falling into the category of no. I'll be curious to hear your conversation about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Denis Boudreau's thoughts, the founder of Inclusive Communication. But Elizabeth, I didn't mean to box you out of this conversation because you and I actually touched on this a little bit yesterday uh, over the phone having a conversation. And you, you relayed what was just an incredible quote when thinking about the way in which accessibility features are sometimes perceived by the general population. Yeah, thank you so much. I've been thinking a lot about this just in the context of, um, you know, my own life. And I, I feel like the quote that resonates with me is, your convenience is my access. So Laura touched on it, and we we know that a lot of these smart home devices uh, and, and Apple devices, et cetera, et cetera, are designed with a lot of convenience features, right? We all use Siri or we all use, um, you know, dictation or smart home. But a lot of that stuff was designed to be convenient. And unfortunately, sometimes what that does is when people need that for accessibility and have experience this myself in the in the education world, it's seen as, well, that's that's a convenience, that's a luxury. You don't really need that. But we do need it. And so I I really think about how a lot of times these companies, they're not, I don't, I would say no, I don't think they're thinking off the hop like Laura says about accessibility. They're thinking about convenience and the easiest way to get people to use them. And sure, that helps accessibility. Um, but I think it's really difficult because quite often um, myself, I felt like boxed in when I try to explain why do I need X for, for school? And then it's seen sort of as a convenience or a nice to have as opposed to a need to have. Mm. I'm so glad that you two were able to set the table a little bit, put a little bit more context into this conversation. Literally in about three and a half minutes, Denny Boudreau and I are going to continue this thought and explore this premise a little bit more. In the meantime, I want to extend an invitation to you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex to chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or chime in via phone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. And once again, the points of contact on social media, you can answer the poll straight up at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook or at Accessible Media on Twitter. The polls don't go directly up on Instagram or TikTok, but certainly you can tag Accessible Media on TikTok and share a little video with your thoughts or... Do that on Instagram, at Accessible Media Inc. So just because the polls aren't explicitly posted there, you can still get involved on those platforms, at Accessible Media Inc. on Instagram, at Accessible Media on TikTok. Coming up after the break, big tech as an ally for accessibility and people with disabilities. That premise is going to be explored a little bit more with the founder of Inclusive Communication, Denis Boudreau. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Big tech companies are often touting their latest accessibility features. People with disabilities are often identifying accessibility shortcomings with their technology. I was asked a question a few weeks ago that is still resonating with me. Paraphrasing the question a little bit here, but for the sake of uh, simplicity, why does it seem that big technology companies are more focused on accessibility than other industries? I'm not sure if you agree with that premise. I'm not sure if I agree with that premise. Let's see if Denis Boudreau agrees with the premise. Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Good morning, Denis. How are you holding up in Montreal this morning? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. How about you? <laughs> Denis, I am uh, doing great. I uh, oftentimes make fun of these Torontonians that I work with, that there's no such thing as real winter in Toronto, because I grew up I grew up in your city, so I know something about real winter. Yeah, well, not this year. It's still raining today. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Denis, let's uh, jump into it. First and foremost, what do you think of the premise? And I can reread the question if you want me to. Uh, well, I'm I'm good. I mean, whether I think uh, big tech are, are more focused on accessibility than other industries, honestly, I'm like you. I'm not sure. There are some days where I'd say absolutely. Other days, I'm like, hell no, really. So uh, it's it really depends on how you look at it. I, I agree with a lot of the things that Laura said before uh, before the break. There, um, it looks as though it doesn't feel it, that they that they don't do as much, especially when it comes to allyship. Back to that conversation, but um, I think it's more about a question of whether we look at it from the perspective of the technology companies themselves or the people that work within them, and then that's where I see the big difference. I I don't think like, like I, I, I might change my mind as we go through that conversations together, but my initial thinking is that probably not as much as as they. As we think, um, it looks as though they're more focused on it. I think only because technology is how we communicate around these things with one another, you know, on different platforms. So because we're using these platforms to communicate, then it's a little easier to either celebrate when I don't know Instagram adds the ability of uh, of alt text to their images, for instance, or when you know Netflix comes up with captions at some point, in like eight or nine years ago, so eight years ago, something like that. So celebrating those wins, uh, you know, might make it feel to us like yes, they're doing more, but there's a million things being done in other industries that we just don't see as much because we kind of take it for granted because it's our day to day, as opposed to how or where we congregate. To talk about these things. So I think that plays a big piece into it. Denis, that makes so much sense to me when you think about the presence of technology in our lives. Unless you are pretty much living in a very isolated community, you are interacting all the time with technology at, at every corner. So because it's more prominent in our life, any progress in that space is going to feel bigger and more prominent. When I think about the positive side of the premise, because I'm like you, Denis, I waver. I, I could go either way on this. And I think, that, I think that's what makes it a good question or a good thought worthy of conversation. When I mm. think about the good side, you mentioned a couple features there on, say, like Netflix or auto-captioning on uh, YouTube, utilizing artificial intelligence. Or if you think about maybe some even very specific features, like uh, in some of the new Apple phones, the uh, door detection mode. 
it's clear that there's 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 some deliberateness in the way that those big tech companies are developing these things, that they're tasking people with doing the work. It's not simply a matter of someone with a disability adapting a generalized feature for, for their own for their own accessibility purposes, but there is some deliberateness in the way that big tech is thinking about accessibility needs. So if I were to identify a positive, I would say some of the features in terms of deliberate development, like, like that has to at least be a check on the good side of the ledger. For sure, for sure. I mean, it, it really does improve, you know, our experience as as end users. Uh, all these features definitely, you know, make it better. So, the positive side is certainly how it empowers people to, you know, truly connect with one another, to to fully embrace technology. Well, you know, as much as they can, really. But like this idea that it empowers people to be more autonomous. All these things are amazing, for sure. Um, when you when you look into uh, you know, different features like that, that that are being added to either you know, tablets, phones, or just websites or applications in general. I mean, every single time that one of those features makes someone a bit more autonomous, it's an absolute win, right? But one of the things that I would question is whether the choices that are being made by these by big tech companies as to integrating a feature, one feature or another, is what drives it. And, you know, part of me is like, I don't really care what drives it as long as it's being driven and, you know, these things happen. Um, but it's it's kind of hard not to notice that most features that are coming out in technology are first and foremost for very specific user groups with mm. specific disabilities. Oftentimes, maybe not the detriment of other groups, but certainly in a way that makes other groups less taken care of, if that makes sense. Um, you know, there's a lot going on uh, right now with uh, like visual disabilities, blindness, you know, everything being added to, to you know, the iPhone or, or Android or, or features, sites more accessible to assistive technologies like screen readers. Like these things are constantly being improved. Uh, and uh, and AI certainly plays a big role into this and, and will keep playing a bigger and big, bigger role into this in the future. But just how much of these features do you hear about on, on a you know semi-regular basis mm -hmm. that really helps someone with a learning disability, for instance, or someone with ADHD, someone who's neurodivergent? Like there's not as much going on uh, in, in that space than we have with, you know, support for captions or or you know translations to different languages like some of these things are more popular it seems and what i wonder is really what drives these big companies to focus on certain aspects is it really trying to make the world better or is it just surfing on that wave of oh right now ai is really cool for that thing so let's put you know some of our our money into this as well so that we look good too so yeah. kind of questioning the motivation. Yeah, you know, I think about the motivation as well, Denis, because oftentimes it may be put forward as altruism. Oh, look at Apple and Google. They're so altruistic in the work they're doing when odds are it might actually be a little bit more capitalistic, right? There's all this work that the Rickanson Foundation and the Conference Board of Canada have done about the buying power of individuals with disabilities and the people in their circles. And certainly companies want a piece of that pie. They want some of that dough. And, and like that that's yeah. cool. But then you start falling into some of these traps where 
if it's truly just a matter of capitalism, you get what happened with Microsoft earlier this year in Soundscape, a, uh, a navigation tool that was used by a lot of members of the blind and low vision community. And eventually Microsoft said, you know, we're just not going to support this anymore. So sometimes when it's not strictly altruism, when it is purely capitalism, there's that downslide, there's that downside of a backslide. Very true. I mean, what, what, you, what, you're, what you just said reminds me of something Tim, could, Tim Cook said years ago, so the CEO of Apple. And like, I, we, we'll never know, really, if it was just a PR stunt or if he actually means it because they do a lot for accessibility. But he said something along the lines of, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll excuse my language here, but he says, you know, when we think about accessibility and people with disabilities, I don't really care about the bloody ROI the return on investment. So like the whole thing was like amazing to hear for us in this space, like, oh, cool. Let, like, yeah, let's just invest because we want people, we want to level the playing field for everyone. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, Laura, before before the break, she was saying how, you know, Netflix, for instance, has, has captions now um, and audio description. And that only came out of a lawsuit, for instance, which is absolutely true. I think back in 2015, I think is when it happened. And, um, but, you know, since then, the, the thing is companies change, right? I mean, back to something I was saying at the beginning, the, the, these big tech companies, their main motivation, their main driver, of course, is, you know, making sure that every quarter they, they meet their quotas, they meet their, their, you know, their, 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 their goals, financial goals, revenue goals, and everything. But within those organizations are people who really believe in doing this and, and are driven by a mission to make things more accessible. And Netflix is one of those examples are really amazing people at Netflix working on making things more accessible for, for, for people with disabilities. And it's easy to judge the company thinking, oh yeah, they're just doing this for, for the money or for the, the, you know, the reputation and all that, these things. But within those companies, pretty much every company that I've worked with um, in the last you know, 12, 15 years, you always have someone in there who is just all in and will do whatever they need to do to make sure that they make these little uh, gains and, and improvements. So you know, back to your initial question, like is, are they really doing more? I think that because of the, because of the way that these technologies impact our lives, we feel like they're doing more when a feature comes to us and, and is either impacting us personally or, or, or we feel like it's particularly impressive and, and interesting and inspiring. And maybe that's why we tend to think that. But then again, when you look at everything else that could be done, maybe not as much as, as they could or, or as we certainly as we'd hope they, they would do. Yeah, Denny, this is where I come back to sort of the positivity or, or optimism side of the conversation. And again, a lot of what I'm going to say here are generalities. But when I think about technology and big tech as sort of a collective box, I would say that the majority of folks in leadership positions and a lot of the top developers would see themselves as futurists, people who are looking at creating a, a new society, a different society, not just looking down the road for the next quarter, but the next decade or decades to come. And I would say that when you combine a forward-looking approach in combination with a, a large chunk of people who are probably 
uh, on the younger side of things are certainly uh, Gen X and younger as sort of the core leaders in the space right now, because the industry, although not new anymore, is still probably newer than, say, railroads <laughs> or airlines or, or big oil or whatever, or whatever way you want to <laughs> phrase it. I would say that if somebody is having a futuristic point of view of the work that they do, odds are they are thinking about out a society that includes disability. And again, I know I'm making a generalization there without necessarily specific examples or specific quotes, but I would just say that if, you're, if your motto is that we're moving fast and breaking things, in the short mm. term, that can be very problematic. But in the long term, if you're thinking about a more collectivized futuristic society, odds are that's going to include assistive technology. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for including Gen X in the young people. <laughs> well, as, as a geriatric, as a geriatric millennial, Denis, who's right on the uh, right on the border of Gen X, I uh, try to include as many people as I can. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I mean the yeah, I, I think the generalization is not bad. I think people in inherently want to do good, right? Um, most people don't think about disability because it's not something that impacts them directly. Most people also are not aware that they're surrounded with people with invisible disabilities. And if they knew, maybe they'd be a bit more concerned or, or you know, paying attention to it to begin with. I think that, again, maybe maybe in tech, because of lawsuits that are happening and because of you know, the visibility of those platforms, and because they're being used by those folks regularly and, and what that creates in terms of a buzz, Within those organizations, people are going to be more likely, maybe than other areas, industries, to hear about accessibility lawsuits, especially if they're American companies or if they're influenced by the U.S., for instance. Um, so within those companies, when you start hearing about, you know, either the Accessible Canada Act or you start hearing about the American with Disabilities Act or, you know, any any of the, the different laws that may exist, even, you know, hearing about the W3C and the accessibility guidelines, like all these different things that we that we know and love. Um, once you start hearing about that as a developer, for instance, as a designer, as someone who builds, creates these platforms, these these tools, and, you know, you you care about your work, you you put pride into what you do and you understand all of a sudden that what you're building either results in some people being able to freely use technology or being removed from it. You know, if you're, if you're like a somewhat decent human being, I mean, you can't help but be touched by that. I mean, I can do this in a certain way and then people will not be able to use it or I can do this in this way instead and then more people can use what I'm working on. Why wouldn't I do that? So most people, you know, will naturally lean into this once they know the challenge is always the same, which is just education and, and raising awareness so that people actually understand what or how they can they can impact other people's lives by working in a certain way. So, yeah, and, and certainly younger generations are much more sensitive to this idea of inclusivity that, say, even my generation was. So I'm, I'm right in the middle of Gen X. I'm 52. So I'm pretty much right in the middle of that generation. And... Most people my age, I mean, it's really about themselves. I mean, yeah, they care about others, but most people are first and foremost, like, how am I doing? Like, are, are, is everything okay around me? That's part of how we were raised. But, uh, but younger generations are more about the collectivity, it feels. Looking, looking at my kids, definitely that's, that's how they think. And, uh, and as a result of that, the likelihood of people being more easily touched by how they can influence other people's lives, how they can empower other people to really be 
autonomous and 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 you know be able to do things on their own without having to rely on someone else to do that for them certainly has an impact on on whether or not they want to contribute to the solution as opposed to being part of the problem. So so I, th I think you, when you compound all these different things, you know the, the industry, technology itself, people tending to be younger, arguably now we've got people from different generations that are still active in tech because you know old people like me started that like 25 years ago. So we used to be younger. Um, but so we grew into this the, this industry, but new younger people come in every day and they come in with a set of values that are certainly more conducive to caring about inclusion and caring about helping others uh, you know, fulfill their full potential. So in that sense, yes, absolutely. I think I think it's it's a very positive thing. And I think that we the best is yet to come, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Denis, you've been so generous with your time today. We've gone a little bit over time. You've been so generous with your time all year. Thank you for all the hard work on the show. All the best to you and the family over the holidays and talk to you in 2024. Likewise, looking forward to it. Thank you very much. That's Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. Coming up next, Quebec has been experiencing record-breaking weather. Elizabeth Moeller has the lowdown in the weather story of the day, and I've got the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The weather report is coming your way in just a minute. But before that, here's the regional news update. Beginning in the prairies, the Manitoba government is pausing a wide range of health care capital projects. Among the affected projects is a personal care home in Lac de Bonnet. Health Minister Uzama Asagara elaborates on the decision. All projects are under review. I'm currently evaluating and assessing all projects uh, to ensure that our approach moving forward is one that strengthens healthcare and is also financially responsible. The government is citing their inherited $1.6 billion deficit for the review and a series of staff shortages. Over to Quebec. Following up from a story yesterday, Quebec Health Minister Christian Dubé is asking the public to avoid overcrowded emergency rooms. Lisa Laporte has the story. Dubé says people who don't need urgent care should go to clinics staffed by family doctors or nurse practitioners. He says patients can also call 811 to speak to a nurse and get an appointment at a medical clinic. His comments come four days after a group representing chief doctors in Quebec's emergency departments sent a letter to Dubé saying the situation in ERs is, quote, out of control. Health data website Index Sante says the average ER occupancy in Quebec on Tuesday afternoon was 131%. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. And one more healthcare story for you, and this one's from the Atlantic provinces. Prince Edward Island signed a $94 million healthcare deal with the federal government. Najud El Malise takes a closer look. 
This makes PEI the second province to come to an agreement with Ottawa after British Columbia signed a similar one in October. The bilateral deals are part of a $196 billion 10-year National Health Accord Prime Minister Justin Trudeau offered to premiers in February. On their end, provinces and territories are expected to commit to massive upgrades to digital medical records and the collection of healthcare data, as well as being held to account for meeting targets and timelines. In exchange for its share of the funding, PEI has agreed to build 16 new patient medical homes, invest in mental health care, and make improvements to the health care workforce over the next three years. Nijud Amelisiknein, Press, Ottawa. Thank you very much, Nijud. That's your look at the regional news. In one minute, Elizabeth Moeller will have the weather report of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Gains in base metal and financial stocks helped lift Canada's main stock index more than 1% higher yesterday. Toronto's TSX index gained 216 points to close at 20,839. New York's Dow Jones average climbed 251 points and the Nasdaq added 98. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index surged 456 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 75 cents U.S. Experts say elect- Electric vehicle buyers should be aware of the costs and logistics of installing charging infrastructure before they buy an EV. Mark Marmer, the owner of Signature Electric, says installing a charger is easiest at a single-family home, where an electrical system would first be inspected by a licensed professional and the owner would get the necessary permits. It can cost somewhere between $1,500 and $3,000 to install an at-home charger. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to Elizabeth Moeller for the weather reports. So, Elizabeth, you heard Denis Boudreau mention it. Uh, Montreal experiencing quite a bit of rain. Yes, absolutely. Quebec had an unusual weather day on on Monday and still um, yesterday and today experiencing that. Those rain and mild temperatures have actually broken new records for December. There was a really big low pressure system that brought a lot of wet and moist air from those tropics into Quebec, which caused more rain than usual this time of year. Usually in Montreal, um, there's more snow this time of year, but in Montreal, there was a record-breaking amount of rain on Monday, which was 53 milliliters of rain. And this not only set a new December record, but also made it the rainiest winter day ever in Montreal. So since Sunday, we've seen downtown Montreal got 82 millimeters of rain. Quebec City and other nearby areas experienced a whole month's worth of rain in less than a day. That is a lot of rain. This caused problems as snow melted and local rivers started to rise. Um, There has been some evacuation of homes. Uh, Authorities have had to evacuate homes near Beauport, just east of the capital city. So Dave, we are keeping fingers crossed for people to be safe as we navigate these wet and rainy conditions in Quebec. Yeah, definitely one to put on the radar for sure. Thank you for this, Elizabeth. You're welcome. That is Elizabeth Moeller with the weather reports. Coming up after the break, there's a modern take on Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Coming to Vancouver, community reporter Amy Amanti gives you the scoop. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's a modern take on Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella coming to Vancouver. There's also going to be a described performance by Vocalize at the Gateway Theatre on December the 29th. Vancouver community reporter Amy Amanti has more of the details. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. So, Amy, I love when you bring these theater stories that have these modern takes. What makes the take modern on Cinderella? I have no idea. They're not okay. Oh, really secret. Oh, I know. They say it's a, a the classic fairy tale with a modern twist. I also know it's a musical. So, but I think maybe the classic Disney one was a musical too. It's been a while since I've watched that one. Cinderella, but, Cinderella, day and night yeah, at Cinderella. That's right. Yeah, Cinderella. Oh, that's it's really sorry. Nice yeah, you're right. Cinderella. No, you got it. Yeah, you got it. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> together with our brains, together we made that work. I may have to watch that maybe a couple of times before I go see this movie or this <laughs> subplay. But um, Vocalize had a really active month. We've had six plays in December. Wow. Holy smokes. So, yeah. It's been a, it's been a, a fun-filled uh, December full of plays. But this one will take place in Richmond, B.C. on the 29th at 7.30 p.m. And we're all super excited about this because it's a, it's a fairy tale. It's right on sort of the, the cusp of New Year. So it feels like like a fun time to go uh, have a play and celebrate a night out. There, there's really something about that week between Christmas and New Year's. Listen, there's a lot of people who do have to work that week, and and I thank you for your work and your service. But for folks who uh, don't get to work, there is something special about um, that little break between a lot of obligations where you can actually just sort of enjoy and relax, and December the 29th is definitely one of those days. Amy, what are some of the need-to-knows about the described performance on the 29th? I think what's uh, good to know about this is that um, we have theater buddies available. So if you want someone to meet you at a local transit stop and have sighted guide um, service, I suppose, but have sighted guide support to the theater, we can offer that. That's, uh, that's There's no charge for that. And also that the tickets for Vocaline members are 50% off. So you get a really good ticket price. I think I paid $30 for my ticket. So that's a really nice perk to have. Um, and box office is great. So just phone them up and um, tell them that you want your tickets. And um, they have some seats on reserve for Vocali members. So if you want front row because you want to, um, you know, use the best of your partial site or you have a guide dog and it's more accessible for you, um, that's uh, they have some seats on reserve there. So. Yeah, it's there, you know, we vocal uh, has worked really hard to try and train box office folks to be, uh, you know, to, to work digni with dignity with our community. And they're not all there, but, you know, it's been a 10 year labor of love to try and work, work yeah. with many <laughs> theaters and their box office staff. But, you know, with all the turnover, sometimes you're like, OK, let's have this conversation again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, you know, that, that that's part of the ongoing advocacy. Right. We, we, we would love that. We'd love that accessibility was sort of standard operating procedure. But uh, mm -hmm. as a society, we're not quite all the way there yet. But yeah, the, the, but these are the important conversations, right, that you need to be perpetually working with people. And listen, even those best practices, some of that's going to change over the course of a decade, too. So it's always worth a yep. refresher. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to give a few points of contact here. Uh, 604-270-1812. That's a phone number for more information. 604 270 
1812 or visit vocaleye.ca vocaleye.ca although by this point you should have vocaleye bookmarked on your browser because amy's always given them lots of great shout outs on the air okay let's go to something a little bit more christmasy from cinderella yeah. to a miniature christmas village a man who was legally blind created a winter wonderland display a miniature one on his what? dining room table why did this story jump out to you amy Oh, I thought this was really interesting. So this man, his name is uh, Terry Campbell, and he was featured in a, a local online newspaper, the Vancouver Island Free Daily .com, of all things. He doesn't live on Vancouver Island. He lives in Chilliwack. So for folks who aren't in the BC area, I'm going to try and get this right. But this is like an hour and a half to two hours outside of Vancouver, depending on traffic-ish. So he lives in Chilliwack, and... Um, he uh, has been doing this, these little miniature Christmas villages. So they're made out of ceramic, right? Um, little snowy sort of village wonderland kind of idea since 2007. And it started as a Christmas gift for his wife and it just continued to grow. And then in 2018, he uh, was diagnosed as legally blind and he continued to do these. And I think that this is a wonderful thing because as you know, Dave, whether you are diagnosed with uh, as legally blind as an acquired sight loss or whether you are born with a congenital low vision or blindness the things we love to do we find a way to do them um so whether you are a woodworker or i'm a beater i do beaded jewelry when i lost my sight i continue to find a way to do that and i think that that's really empowering for um not only for the like the the self-care of the human that's that is blind or low vision but for the rest of the world who says and even in this article it's kind of written like wow he's such an inspiration but truly like the rest of the world goes really how does this work how is this possible why is he doing this how is he doing this and it's like where there's a will there's a way he loves the thing that he does and he uses a high-powered magnifying glass with a with a little light on it and he holds it really close to his eye and i'd love to tell you if you have a moment what is in this village please please it's grown over the last 15 years which i think is lovely and it started with just a small pet shop and a chapel and a little art gallery. So that's how it started in 2007. And then over 15 years, and I'm sort of quoting the, uh, the um, uh, author of the article here. So she says, the small dis display has grown over the next 15 years to what it is today, a winter wonderland full of tiny snowy scenes that um, one could almost step right into. So a ski lift that moves, a ski lift moves chairs and gondolas up and down a mountain while at the bottom a parade marches through the village then a train rolls around santa's santa's lit up amusement park and then through a tunnel there's an active moving train and moving gondolas right <laughs> across the village people are on a skating rink and they're playing hockey uh, while others are um, staying warm beside tiny campfires uh, there are rows and rows of houses and shops, plus a fire station and a radio station. It should be AMI, but it's not, um, <laughs> and, right? And there's a whole bunch of things. And so they light up, they move, they play music, they make sounds, um, and all of the roads and walkways actually connect together. So these little tiny figurines, these little tiny people um, that are maybe about a half an inch to an inch big for you know, comparison's sake, if they were uh, movable in the space, if they were to come alive at night, so to speak, they can connect and walk through the village like it was a, a street in any 
you know, any neighborhood. So like you got 184 people in there, you got 73 animals in there, 391 trees, 80, uh, 28 birds, 76 structures. Like this thing is incredibly massive. And we talked about it fitting on a dining room table. And actually what he's done, um, if I remember the picture correctly, is he's taken the dining room table and kind of making a big square out of it. So in the middle, you can stand but it's a big square. So really it's more than just the dining room table, right? <laughs> it takes up the whole dining room and it takes two to three months to build. Oh my gosh. So at this point, his wife is like, honey, it's lovely, but I'd like my dining room back. <laughs> so yeah, go. <laughs> we, got, we got to feed the family and friends on Christmas day. Get your stuff out of the dining room. We got to put some turkey on there. We've uh, all got TV trays, right? <laughs> Amy, I don't, I don't want to dwell on this too much because you and I on the air, off the air, on other venues have talked about inspiration porn, but you, yep. use, but you use the word inspiration there. But you said something that I thought was really, really important and really, really interesting. It's cool that this gets platformed, but what's mm -hmm. really cool is what you identified, the how he does it and why he does it, right? That's what separates, to my mind, inspiration porn from saying, oh, look at what this person with a disability can do, rather than how are they doing it and why are they doing it? Because that's the difference between inspiration and empowering, because you mentioned the importance of hobbies Everybody's got them. You've got beating. Absolutely. When I clear my mind, I do it with video games. I call it conscious unconsciousness, where I'm uh -huh. doing something that requires conscious attention, but I'm actually literally meditating while I'm doing it. I'm thinking about other things. It's, it's so important to have hobbies. And I know, I'm, I know I've kind of wandered off a little bit from the path here, but I think it's a great reminder to all media when talking about disability, the how and the why is way more important than the what. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that because uh, we are human beings living in this world every day, which means we are doing things that every other human being in this world does, right? So yeah, it's not exceptional that we have hobbies. Of course we do. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, person with disability Imagine has a hobby. Oh my, oh goodness, great, oh my. Uh, Amy, one last holiday thought here, New Year's mm -hmm. Eve fireworks displays. I'm a mm -hmm. big, as someone who's legally blind, I love me some fireworks. They're sonically rich, and because they're colorful, I'm able to pick them out of the sky, but that's not the case for everybody on the blindness spectrum. What are some of your thoughts about fireworks displays being a little bit more inclusive? You know, um, Vocali has been doing, they started this years and years ago, um, which is not what this story is about in particular, but we were doing fingerworks for fireworks. Um, so we were doing tactile fireworks using the, the back as the canvas. So, you know, at your shoulder blades, just below your neck would be uh, the top of the sky and then lower on the back. And then your lower back would be like the, where the barge is. And you could use your fingers to go fast or slow or different spots in the sky. And we would train a, a describer to work with an individual and, and teach them the shapes of the fireworks, right? And so you could use all sorts of shapes and textures and all those kinds of things to kind of, I don't know, draw shapes on the back. Um, so we were doing that. So I thought that was really incredible. Plus we were down on the beach smelling the salt air, listening to the people around, listening to the booms in the sky, smelling the, the gunpowder and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, you felt like you were really immersed. But, you know, we weren't doing this on New Year's Eve. We were doing this in the summertime because on New Year's Eve, it's cold here, even in Vancouver. Uh, maybe not under snow like you grew up in Montreal, Dave, um, but it's cold here. But in Sydney, Australia, um, starting in 2018, they started doing described fireworks over the radio. 
And of course, Sydney, Australia is one of the first time zones in the world to hit New Year's um, celebrations, right? So people are tuning in all over the world. Um, and so it, it seemed kind of natural that um, they, they were the first to sort of pilot this idea of doing description of the fireworks. Um, you know, some of the challenges of doing that is that you don't get to have a dress rehearsal of it, right? Yeah, You're yeah. doing it live on the fly and that sort of spontaneous description is really difficult to do because the sighted person is trying to figure out what it all means at the same time as trying to describe it. Mm. Uh, so, and it doesn't, I, you know, fireworks doesn't have to be perfect because we always say like a picture says a thousand words. Well, truly a thousand words isn't going to come out of your mouth with description. You have to, you have to choose what's important and share that and every describer is going to find something different that's important but that's really what a describer has to do is go okay what's important in this moment to get across um what am i noticing that's important that i, that I feel like i need to share that's red really red about, right? blue green yeah. big small sparkle scatter well and but this you know this kind of description requires this is what we did with vocali you actually have to teach a tutorial on what fireworks are because each actual firework has a shape yes um and, and hat right so there's a, a chrysanthemum and there's a um horsetail and these are the the actual names of the the pyrotechnics that they use when they build the fireworks right and so why wouldn't you use that same terminology it's like using medical terminology um and so uh so if you don't know the terminology for these things then you're gonna say round fast slow right but if you could say chrysanthemum right and then you can unpack what that means right okay so there's a chrysanthemum it's shaped like this there's there's uh, one at 12 o'clock there's one at three o'clock and they combine together in a crescendo right like i would if i was describing this stuff i would come with a list of verbs yeah um, and a yeah. list of adjectives so that i didn't have to think about them i would just come with them in advance um and i could like i could pick them and go oh okay this is what I think fireworks, you know, would it would entail, you know, mm -hmm. and I, mm -hmm. this is kind of what I, what I ask describers to do, even if they're describing a, a dance piece, it's like, you know, what's the theme of the dance and, and uh, pick a list of verbs after you've watched it a couple of times, hopefully it's on video. And then when you write it out, it's not so hard because you've got this list of verbs where you're like, oh yeah, this word means like nine different things. There's layers here instead yeah. of walk, yeah. run or jump. Right. There's so many more layers there. So it makes the process a little bit more easy if you've got sort of your own glossary of verbs to use. Amy, thank you for this. Have a lovely holiday season with friends and family. Talk to you in 2024. You got it, Dave. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. That's Amy Manti, community reporter in Vancouver, B.C. In 60 seconds, Laura Bain has some Christmas music in the world of entertainment. But first... Not all computer keyboards are created equal. Mike Dubesky taps out another edition of Tech Trends. About 40 enthusiasts showed up to a mechanical keyboard meetup in Manhattan's West Village over the weekend. Will Fan was one of the organizers. It's usually just bring your keyboard or just show up, talk to other people about like what you're doing, what you're planning to build, what you have built. Custom keyboards can be various shapes, like Riley Bay's pink Nyaun 75 board. It's called Nyaun because that's like the onomatopoeia for how cats meow in Korean, and it's shaped like a cat. Key caps are also highly customizable, like Siobhan's coffee-themed keyboard. There's actually Arabic alphabet on here as well to go with Arabica coffee. And so are key switches, which John Poblador says determine how typing on a keyboard feels and sounds. There 
They're little plastic cubes with a cross-shaped stem on it, and the internals of the cross-shaped stem is actually what determines the feel. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. One of the old uh, producers around these parts at AMI, Sam Robinson, was a big enthusiast of mechanical keyboards. You always knew when Sam was in the office because you could hear it from uh, four rooms away as he tapped away on his keyboard. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. Laura Bain, I will confess to you, last night was the first official night that I hit play on Christmas music in my Spotify. Had a little bit of the uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong Christmas album from 2016 blaring through the Bluetooth speakers. Ooh, those are some. So I thought we could have a little look at it, and I brought some clips to Ooh. listen to as well. Oh, 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 yeah, good stuff. A little treat there. So I want to start off with with Cher and her 27th studio album, but first ever Christmas album, which is simply called Christmas. And that seems very shared. It just called the album Christmas. Um, so the album's a mix of covers and originals and features special guests such as Stevie Wonder, Cindy Lauper, and Michael Bublé. So I have brought us the lead single DJ Play a Christmas Song. Let's give that a listen. DJ Laura, for the raving enthusiast, for those raves on Christmas nights. Tell me your foot's not tapping, Dave. Come oh, on. Oh, Laura, between that and some of the fireworks that we showed on screen when Amy Amanti was talking about fireworks, it kind of makes me wonder if I should have uh, had a couple gummies this morning before the show. Ooh. Now, I've been known to do a share cover or two, uh, so I'm thinking that maybe that track's going into the mix. I think it's a, a jam for sure. <laughs> High energy. I love it. The Philly Specials are a trio comprised of three players of the Philadelphia Eagles. So we've got some football content. Uh, Lane Johnson, Jason Kels, and Jordan Maleta. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, they put out a new Christmas album, and it features a cover of Fairy Tale of New York called Fairy Tale of Philadelphia. Oh, my gosh. And this features Travis Kels of Kansas City Chiefs and Taylor Swift fame. Let's give that cover a listen. You were handsome, you were pretty, you're the king of South Philly. When the band finished playing, they howled out for more. The leathers were swinging, all the drums they were singing. We fought on a corner, then danced through the night. The sound of the silver ages choir all singing. What do you think of that one? <laughs> I'm I'm gonna say that uh, I'm I'm beginning to reach the point of uh, Kelsey oversaturation at this juncture, and uh, this is not helping. Yeah, this one's not making it onto my playlist. I gotta say, I, I know it's gonna be popular, but I think I think it's I think it's bad, Dave. Just <laughs> yeah. use that word. Yeah, let's just say it outright. Yeah, it's bad. It's it's no good. Leave uh, <laughs> leave, leave poor Shane McGowan alone. The guy's like fresh in the grave. So the band Weedus has a new Christmas EP out featuring a cover of their massive early 2000s hit Teenage Dirtbag. I brought you a clip of Christmas Dirtbag and the animated music video that goes along with it. So I've got a little bit of audio ooh, description ooh, here yeah. to set up. I was going to say, make sure we read the description before we play this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this clip features a large gray dog with a pink nose napping, running in the snow and dancing on ice. Let's give that a watch and a listen. Cause I'm just in Christmas. 
Uh, Laura, can I just say I love this song, like the original song so much <laughs> that I'm almost not super happy that they're messing around with it and Christmasifying it. Like, this is more fun if somebody does it at a party. I don't know if I need the band putting out Christmas songs. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I definitely like, you know, I heard this and I'm like, oh, yeah, but it might just be that the original is so nostalgic and like such a jam that I'm kind of like, you know, this is a jam by default because it's <laughs> yeah. got that same sort of same sort of sound to it, but uh, it's definitely fun. I've got um, two tickets to Mariah Carey, baby. Come <laughs> with me Friday. Don't say maybe. Sorry, sorry, I'll stop. I'll stop. I know people you're complain just when you're I just sing. There, yeah, we're yeah, riffing, riffing over here, but I think I'm riffing pretty good. That you know, I'm, I'm paying uh, homage. I'm, I'm paying homage over here. Hey, uh, Laura, you, oh. go, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, please. Just going to say there's lots of other Christmas music out there this season that we don't have time to get to. Alanis Morissette, Brandy, Boy Genius, and, you know, lots of others. So if folks don't want to listen to the Christmas music of their childhood, they don't have to. They can definitely uh, mix it up this season. Laura, as always, I've taken you over time, but one question on the way out. Your favorite Christmas song of all time? Well, quick answer is going to be Fairy Tale of New York, which is probably why I'm so offended by the uh, Kelsey <laughs> duo version. Oh, uh, good answer. What about I, yourself, Dave? Uh, uh, White Christmas, a big fan of the Bing Crosby version, but of course, last night, the Louis Armstrong version hit me in the feels yeah. in a big way last night, too. Hey, Laura, all the best to you. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. You too. That is Laura Bain coming up after the break. Brock Richardson is going to talk about the issue of para-athletes getting their equipment and mobility devices damaged by airlines. Sound familiar? That's coming your way on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. I am a old man millennial dirtbag, Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, December the 20th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the COP28 climate conference took place earlier this month in Dubai. Journalist Arno Kopecki will talk about some of the big takeaways and the holiday season is in full swing. Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore, and I reopen the holiday grab bag of topics. You'll see what uh, Santa Dave has to dole out in terms of hot takes. But the hour begins with Brock Richardson and the sports chat. So, Brock, one of the words that gets used often in talking about the disability experience is intersectionality, that a lot of what the general population experiences, people with disabilities experience, but there's even some intersectionality when it comes within the community, and that is that para-athletes are not exempt from some of the issues that regular folk with disabilities encounter, and that is lost, stolen, and damaged mobility devices and equipment when traveling on airlines. What's some of the background here? 
Yes, so the CBC uh, came out with a story yesterday uh, featuring a few athletes talking about equipment uh, that's damaged. And the reason it came out now was because a number of athletes had their equipment damaged coming back from Santiago, Chile, which was the Parapan American Games. Uh, One of the athletes here that I'll I'll focus on is Alison Levine, who, if you can remember, she um, won two medals for bocce and she had her batteries removed and a little bit of damage on her uh, motorized uh, wheelchair. And she said, quote, every time I leave my chair, I take a deep breath and I hope and pray. And this is really kind of sad that this is what she said in that, you know, we all kind of go through this and we all kind of say, uh, this is not how we should feel. But unfortunately, it does. Uh, Karen O'Neill, who is the uh, Canadian Paralympic Committee um executive director came out yesterday in the same article and she said air canada has been a sponsor since 2007 i have requested a meeting with them to discuss this further and this is a long time that air canada has been uh, a sponsor and just to be so free and just kind of say whoops sorry we damaged your chair but don't worry we'll fix it doesn't really uh, solve the problem of yeah, but if we're in Santiago and you damage my equipment that I happen to need during the competition, where does that get me? I think the airlines are too quick to say, oh, we'll, we'll fix it, which is great, but it doesn't help them in the immediate need. In this case, though, the, most of the damage was done on the return home versus getting to Santiago. But the, the generalized point is still taken here, right? That because the airlines have such a bad track record on treatment of people with disabilities and mobility devices most specifically, that yes, it's obviously very precise when you think about the experience of a para-athlete, but the consequences and stakes are very high, right? Like, it, it, it's, 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 it is awful and terrible that any person with a disability is experiencing the treatment that are generally being uh, given to them by airlines, but it becomes very problematic when you're sending people to an elite level competition and the airlines still can't get their act together. And it's not, and I, it's not even just damage we're talking about. I'm going to give you another example of it's negligence. Smith. It's negligence. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And this, this story that I'm going to give you is exactly that. Austin Smink, who is a national team uh, wheelchair racer for the pa- over the past 10 years, has missed valuable training time and competition time due to the fact that they leave his equipment behind. They leave his equipment behind. He cites in this article uh, that he missed uh, all of the staging camp going to Tokyo. Why? Because they didn't bring his equipment and the airline forgot it. How do you forget someone's equipment? I just, I, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And the last story, Dave, that I'll tell you is my own personal teammate from a number of years ago. She was all excited. She was going to debut a, a new wheelchair for her competition, and uh, it fell off the uh, conveyor belt going into the airplane. We got to Portugal. They brought it to her in a box. It was all in pieces, and they said, "We're sorry. Don't worry. We'll replace it." They had her play out of a hospital-style wheelchair at a world championship event. It is awful, the situations that go through. And it's easy, like I said earlier, it's easy for the airline to say, oh, we'll, we'll pay for it, no worries, which is great, but it doesn't help us in the moment of now and what do we do in the interim.
Yep, sorry that we harmed your dignity, but don't worry, we'll take care of it after you take us to court, and maybe in 18 months we'll uh, rectify the situation. Hey, Brock, got to get out of here. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, the COP28 Climate Summit took place earlier this month in Dubai. Journalist Arno Kopecki will share some of the big takeaways from the event. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The COP28 Climate Summit took place earlier this month in Dubai. There were some storylines that came out of it, that's for sure. Let's find out what jumped out at journalist Arno Kopecki. Hey, good morning, Arno. Good morning, Dave. Arno, let's start with a real easy question. Biggest storyline out of COP28. I'm going to confound it because there was two, really. Uh, you know, there was the text and the subtext, Dave. Uh, the text for me was like everybody going into it was, are they going to name the elephant in the room, which is fossil fuels? Uh, you know, these meetings have been happening for almost 30 years. This was the 28th one. Never before had the words fossil fuels entered into a climate change agreement, even the Paris Agreement that everybody always references. So, you know, this year, everybody was like, OK, let's do it. Let's name it. Let's get them to say we need to phase out fossil fuels. So that was like the one big thing. Is that going to happen? And then the other, the subtext was sort of behind the curtains, peeking out of the curtains, was the role of fossil fuel nations. Uh, this meeting was hosted by the United Arab Emirates, which is a key member of OPEC, uh, basically a petrostate, the very definition. And the president of COP28 was himself the president of one of the biggest oil companies in the world, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, the United Arab Emirates National Oil Company. So it really felt like, you know, is this the fox watching the hen house here, which is what a lot of people felt going into it. What role is that going to play? Like, are they just going to like scuttle the whole thing? And then, of course, a few days before the meetings even began, uh, the BBC reported that the United Arab Emirates was using this meeting, they were hosting all these oil countries, hosting all these countries, they were going to use the meeting to strike a bunch of oil deals and, and oil and gas deals with many of the countries who were coming, including Canada. Uh, so that happened right before everybody arrived and the meeting started and that boom, then it was like, okay, let's go. Yeah, so Arno, I know that you 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 run a little bit tighter in these circles than I do, right? I, I was more casually yeah. observing from the outside, from a broadcast journalist perspective, not a specialist. But it really felt like some of that fossil fuel conversation and the specificity of naming fossil fuels in a final agreement that said we're going to transition away, at least mm -hmm. uh, some like at least in some kind of coded language, we are going to transition away from fossil fuels. It did feel like for about six to seven days the conference and summit was totally derailed by that tension. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there was there's all kinds of ways to look at it. You know, some people I think there's an, an argument that, yeah, you know, you can't have these agreements without involving oil and gas producing nations in some way. Canada is the fourth biggest oil and gas producing nation. We host, hosted one of these meetings a few years ago. Like we could also be accused of being a petro state. Uh, you need to involve them in the talks. But will they approach them in, in good faith? Look, I think um, you said the language exactly that the final language was uh, the 
that the countries are called on to transition away from from fossil fuels. So the words fossil fuels got in there. It's sort of weak, vague language, but nevertheless, I am of the view that words do matter and countries can be, leaders can be held accountable to the words they have said. Now we have named the thing. They didn't agree to phase out uh, fossil fuels, you know, these diplomatic meetings, all the little words matter so much. Um, and there's nothing binding about this. So that's, of course, there, there aren't really any teeth to this stuff. Um, nevertheless, you know, I think given the the inevitable million compromises, I think it was an OK outcome. Like the thing people have to remember is every country, 197 countries, I believe, at these things, every single one of them has a veto on the final statement. So. Uh, it's going to be really hard to get, you know, I think there's the sort of a exercise in managing expectations, uh, what you actually expect these things to accomplish. And to me, the driver of where it's going and sort of both of those things are happening at once. The the optimism that can be shared from at least 197 countries agreeing to this and not vetoing the final language, that is optimistic. That is something that's 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 of note. But something I, that I, I but but something that I've been yammering on about because I love to do me a good yammer, Arno, is that it <laughs> kind it, it kind of doesn't matter what you agree to in Abu Dhabi at a UN summit. It kind of matters how policy translates domestically. And the reality is Canada can't hold that much sway over the rest of the world. But it feels like even internally, even that language of a transition away is going to raise political hackles and is going yeah. to be a nightmare, whether it be on the political stage or on the court stage. 100% Dave uh excellent yammering there you've been we've been echoing each other in our in our various I think where the rubber hits the road is always when the leaders come home and so again Canada fourth biggest oil producer on earth there's this huge thing where you know the federal government has no control over production in Alberta and Saskatchewan where all of our basically all of our oil and gas is produced um those are provincial jurisdictions and so of course those are like very much petro states. So you have Alberta's premier, Danielle Smith, and, and Saskatchewan's premier, Scott Moe, who went to United Arab Emirates to be to, to Dubai, basically to throw grenades at Stephen Guilbeault, the federal environment climate minister. Uh, they went there to just basically scuttle anything he could do. And, and Canada came home with two big announcements. Basically, they said, OK, we're going to reduce methane emissions by 75% by 2030, and we're going to introduce a cap on emissions, because emissions is what Ottawa can control. And Ooh. so, of course, Danielle Smith and Scott Moe said, whoa, 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 that's crazy. It's unconstitutional. It's dangerous. It's expensive. It's technologically impossible. Um, never mind that uh, the oil companies themselves have already, like, in their announcements of, 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 uh, of what's it, uh, capping they they basically said that we can do this but now when the federal government uh tries to cap emissions danielle smith says well that's a de facto cap on production and you may not tell us to reduce production so all to say there is now a big war being set up between the federal government and the provinces who actually control production and i think what's significant about these meetings is that you know now Stephen, after dubai we've had a number of cabinet ministers say okay, yes, look, like the world needs to produce less fossil fuels. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big thing to say in this country. And yeah. it inevitably produces a lot of uproar from people like Danielle Smith. And it starts a really, I think, important conversation that will trickle down to voters in the coming elections. <laughs>
Although, uh, folks like Daniel Smith and Scott Moe uh, put uh, some pretty good financing behind what was a very effective commercial campaign about renewable energy on the electric grid. Uh, maybe a little disingenuous, but uh, every football game I watched, I saw that commercial about 14 times about oh, uh, showing the, un the unreliability of uh, power in your kitchen during the holidays if we move towards renewable energy. So th they're, they're fighting that battle on the ground, not just at the political stumps, but on the TV totally. airwaves as well. I got to watch more football and, and catch some of those commercials. But I believe we did a segment about uh, what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine a few months ago, did we not? <laughs> yeah, we sure did. We sure I guess did. they we, didn't watch that. We tackled yeah. a couple misconceptions. Hey, Arno, oh, no. we got we to be a little quick on this one. I've uh, mismanaged the clock badly today, but I'm making <laughs> you put on your consulting hat because the sure. one thing that I had about this COP28 summit is it felt like we were rehashing a lot of old territory, right? I don't need the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Gutierrez, to tell me that we're at a critical point in the Earth's uh, climate, because I know, yeah. I know. I, I lived through wildfire season yeah. this summer. Yeah. I know the flooding that's going on across Canada, the wildfires in Hawaii, wildfires in Europe. I, I know, I understand, I fundamentally get it. What I wonder if these conferences and summits were really going to go somewhere for here, I would love it to be a bit more of a knowledge-based and knowledge-sharing kind of opportunity where best practices are brought together. So let's say your final language is going to say, we are going to try and transition away from fossil fuels. Okay, how do you do that? What's the actual practical way in which we can offer advice to these countries to go home and say, let's put these policies in place? So I'll give you a for example here. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe invested trillions of dollars to try and create more renewable energies on the continent and change the way they consume energy. I would have loved for COP28 to have taken two or three days to do an in-depth analysis and study of the transition that Europe has made in the last 18 months. Like, 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 I, I'm not saying that you have to agree or disagree with me, but how would you potentially change the way these conferences are executed to be a little bit more pragmatic? Or am I like way off base here? Tell me I'm a dummy and my premise is no good. Well, uh, I would never call you a dummy. Okay. Uh, not, not live on the air. Okay. Uh, but, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think, this, look, the, the, the background of this was this was a global stock take. That was sort of the language. And it was the idea is, OK, they, they actually are looking at, OK, how far have each of the individual countries come in the commitments they made to reach by 2030 in terms of getting up? Well, now getting off of fossil fuels. And what can we do to ratchet up uh, those ambitions? Because, of course, every country is, is behind on its commitments. So there is, if you look into the nitty gritty, there is quite a bit of specificity specificity around how each individual country can meet these targets and accelerate its you know decarbonization getting away from fossil fuels so to your point about renewables there was a very specific commitment around globally tripling the amount of renewable energy production there was language around increase like embracing nuclear power as part of that canada also has like you know again it comes down to specific country things so for Canada, I can say, you know, we're, we're committing to reduce methane emissions by 75%. And because we can't force Alberta to reduce production, we can force them to reduce emissions. So that happened at every, like every country had to say those things and bring those things and say, okay, this is exactly what we're doing. Um, and this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to, you know, go forward. 
Now, the problem is that there nothing is legally binding about this, but I think you're you're saying more like, can we just get like a clear view of of you know without necessarily having legal commitments to to do things, but can we understand where we're at? Yeah, um, the best, the I, best, I, best practices, the best, best, best practices. Practice. I don't. Yeah, so it's a good question, you know, and and um, I don't think that these meetings are the venue for that. I don't think that's the point of that. I I take these as like you said, you know, Antonio, everybody comes out there and makes these grand announcements and, and we've already heard those things. But I I guess I see this almost as, again, a, a reflection as much as a driver of where the world is at in terms of uh, fighting climate change. And the Ooh. fact that all the countries of the world come together once a year for 30 years to fight this, it is such a flawed process. The fact that every country has a veto automatically like defangs it, nevertheless, I do see it as this annual burst of reminders like, look, we have a crisis on our hands. We need to deal with it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to hash this out. You know, it's like this weird global relationship that is so complex and, and contradictory. And and uh, little naive, optimistic, prairie-born Arno uh, <laughs> takes some part in the fact that we do keep getting together to, like, make these announcements. And, yes, it is always going to fall short of, of what is needed. Um but there are it's certainly not the only thing happening there are all kinds of other global uh, meetings and initiatives going on where best practices are being shared and discussed and analyzed and there's you know an entire eco global ecosystem of ngos and advocacy groups and and governmental groups that are that are looking at, at exactly that and i just mm. don't know if cop if these conference of the parties meetings are the place necessarily to do that you know we have these climate reports from the united nations framework on climate change that produces these huge climate reports every few years those are thousand pages long and those break down like with immense detail what every country is doing and could do and, and that's where i think of best, best practices like if you're looking for that those reports are the place to parse some of this stuff you, you could have just called me a dummy. That would have been okay. Uh, Arno, uh, well, <laughs> Arno, thank you for this. Have a lovely holidays with the family and friends. Talk to you in 2024. Thanks, Dave, to you and to all the viewers as well. Happy, happy Christmas and New Year. That is climate journalist Arno Kopecki. Arno is also an author, and he's based in British Columbia. Coming up after the break, the holiday season is in full swing. Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore, and I reopen the holiday grab bag of topics. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The countdown to Christmas, it's officially on. Let's open up the holiday grab bag of topics. Some of these may be presents. A few may be lumps of coal. I'm not having this conversation by myself. Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore are chiming in. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Megan is a reporter for Canadian Affairs. Hello, Jenny. Hello, Dave. And hello, Megan. Hello, everybody. So anyone who watches the show every day knows that I have fought against the tide of the holidays and Christmas for about eight weeks. Halloween came to an end, and right away I was like, I don't want to talk about Christmas markets, but I did it begrudgingly. But now I'm officially excited. Megan, how are you feeling in regard to the holiday spirit? 
Ooh, in regard to okay, right now I feel like I am Santa sleigh in Elf, and they're like, "Where is the Christmas spirit measurement thing?" Um, oh, where am I? So on a scale of one to ten, maybe like a six point five or like a five, which is low for me at this time of year. Usually, I am much higher, like the week before Christmas. It, how much? How much of it is like distance from home, distance from Brantford, knowing you've got some 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 stressful travel ahead of you? Oh, yeah, and I didn't book my ticket early, and I'm leaving at 5.30 in the morning on Saturday. Oh. And that's just going to be a thrill. I'm oh. so excited for my 5.30 train ride. Although, bonus, you get in super early if you leave earlier, which gives me more time to shop while I'm there because carding Christmas presents is is a whole ordeal. So it actually is easier for me to shop when I get there. Um, We've actually just had a lot of... um. Uh, there's been a lot of people close to me like die in the past few months. Oh dear! So it's it's just been like a heavier fall. Oh, I'm so um, sorry. We still man. have a bunch of like work stuff we have to finish up before we get to Christmas. But I am like rest assured, I'm an aunt, and the best part of Christmas is uh, my nephews and niece. So once I see them, all will be well in the world, unless uh, unless they get me sick. Yeah, the, well, that there, there is that possibility. But yeah, the kid the kids <laughs> yeah. bring a lot of joy. Jenny, what about you? How are you feeling in regard to the Christmas spirit? I am. I'm getting there. I think the sweet spot for me is like maybe two weeks of Christmas with the exception of the little advent calendar my husband and I do for one mm, another. He gets mm. the odd days. I get the even days and that helps us oh. sort of get in the spirit, uh, which is really nice. I mean, like two weeks is enough when I start seeing the Christmas stuff hitting the shelves in the stores and the Halloween stuff isn't even gone yet. It's too much. Like it can be too much Mariah, Mariah Carey. It's too much to spend when we're all broke right now, I just, maybe I should just speak for myself. I'm pretty broke right now. <laughs> just paid my property taxes. Everything Oof. is so expensive. Um, but, you know, happy to say I've got my holiday shopping done early this year. But, yeah, I don't think we should feel the pressure to feel happy all December long just because it's the holidays. Like, you know, everything in moderation. Let's be let's be kind to ourselves, too. <laughs> yeah, there's some fun in being a Grinch. Like, you don't need to be happy. You don't need to be happy, but you can still have some fun being a Grinch. Okay, Jenny, you mentioned the broke side of things. I was going to save this for later in the conversation, but I've got a sort of personal, interpersonal human dealings question for both of you. Outside of friends, family, or colleagues... Who do you feel obligated to give a gift to? So, for example, my barber or hairdresser, if she lets me get an appointment this week, is probably going to get a little bit of an extra tip. Maybe the concierge at my building might get a crisp $20 bill for all the Amazon packages she's been managing uh, throughout the year coming to my apartments. So, like, I, I, I feel a couple people in my life are going to get a little extra something-something this week, but I'm going to try to limit it. What about you, Jenny? Well, I think those gestures, for, for me, I love those gestures. But in thinking about my answer, I, I rarely feel obligated to do anything. And I don't know if that's just my personality or the Grinch in me. But I, like you, I do feel compelled to sort of be a bit more generous this time of year. I keep my gift giving circle pretty small. And again, it's usually because I'm trying to stay within a budget not even just this year when things are tight. Um, I I do tip a little extra when I can. I do, um, if I go, if I go get a haircut, like you said, if I take an Uber, 
and my bank account is looking okay that day, they're probably going to get a little extra something, something like you said. Um, but I do usually feel compelled to, like I say, like give back and do what I can. I usually participate in this awesome project called the Shoe Bro- Shoebox mm, Project. Mm. And they're a charity that supports women experiencing homelessness and they're all over Canada and they're they're in a few different countries. But this year, my budget again is different. So I'm looking at doing things a little differently. I'm going to make, um, I'm putting together a donation for Feed Nova Scotia to help, you know, people experiencing uh, food insecurity. So there are lots of ways to do it. It doesn't have to be hard, cold, hard cash. Yeah, crisp, crisp $20 bills, maybe crisp $5 bills, Megan. There you uh, go. Megan, Megan, what about you? Any people in your life outside of sort of like the friends, family, colleagues who you're feeling obliged to give a little something, something to? I kind of side with Jenny on this, and that might be because I don't know if I have, like, I don't live in a building with a concierge, so they don't have to worry about that. Yeah, there Um, you go. uh, Like, I think back in the day when I used to take public transit um, back in my hometown, Brantford, where I actually, like, knew the bus drivers, um, then sometimes I would maybe like get them a card or get them chocolate or something because I would sit at the front in the priority seating and we would chat. Uh, so I would sometimes do that, um, just to be fun. Um, but even going to the friends part, I was actually having a discussion with this, with a friend of mine about how, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I don't have any friends where we have sat down and said, I commit to always giving you a Christmas present every year. So there's some people that I do. Because uh, I typically will try to try to see them every year, so I'll try to have something. But then some people I don't. But I don't know whose list I'm on, and is like there is nothing more awkward to me when somebody gives you a gift and you don't have one to give back. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. This? Uh, you know, you know, Andrika Delanerol, senior producer, was just talking about that yesterday. How she'll carry extra gift cards in her wallet yes. this time of year, just in case she finds herself in that situation. Sorry, Andrika, if I'm blowing up your business uh, on national television. My apologies, <laughs> uh, Jenny. Where do you land? Well, in terms of the gifts, it's it's a really small circle. You know, people who I see all the time. I I do. Yeah, I feel. It is definitely awkward if someone gives you a gift and you don't have one for them. But it, I, I can't think of a time that it's really happened. If I'm going to see you around the holidays, I'm probably going to have a little something for you within okay. my budget. Okay, I like that. Yeah. It might be yeah. baked goods, Dave. It might even be baked goods. That's a good so, one. Yeah, yeah. Jenny, Jenny, you just sent me a lovely gift, and now I feel obliged via reciprocity to get you something. But what's going to happen is I'm just going to come to Halifax and buy you a beer. And, that, and that's oh, 100% and that's, okay. And that's, and that's how I do reciprocity. I, I, you know, with the privilege of getting to spend time with me is how I how I give gifts, although uh, that, that depends on perspective. Um I let folks know earlier this week that if they ever do get a gift from me and I wrap it myself, you may think that a toddler wrapped it because I am uh, weak at the gift wrapping game. Megan, how's your gift wrapping game? Um, yeah, it's called gift bags and lots of tape. <laughs> um, not the biggest fan of tissue paper because I can never make it look pretty. Um, I, I'm with you on this, Dave. My sister, my sister is excellent at gift wrapping and all growing up, I would just get her to wrap all the gifts except hers. And then she had to go on and get married. Like, seriously? So you not have priorities in life. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, like, all growing up, this was, I outsourced this. Um, I believe in gift bags. I believe in tape. But there's usually, there'll usually be a couple gifts each year where I'm like, no, 
I'm going to wrap it. And it, it is an event. And my mom is sometimes there for moral support or safety uh, supervision. <laughs> and it, 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 I always feel super accomplished because it's never as pretty as like my sisters or like the people at the mall. But it, if it's like half decent and it doesn't look like I'm too, it's a win for me. And nobody cares. That, nobody cares about wrapping paper unless you make it funny anyways. So... Good point. Yeah. As long as you made an effort. Uh, Jenny, you strike me as someone who's pretty crafty. I bet you're good at rapping. I'm sorry to disappoint you, Dave, but I can <laughs> probably describe my gift wrapping skills in, in like three words. Pretty basic would be the first word. <laughs> Inconsistent, because sometimes <laughs> I bang it out of the park. Like sometimes I cut just the right amount of paper. I get just the right amount of ribbon and it is a beautiful thing. But other times I, too, uh, am a, a gift wrapping toddler. So um, but you can always tell that I'm trying and I love that gift bags are reusable. We yes. can use. Yeah. Yes. The, uh, you know, the, the environment as our cushion here, like it's environmentally friendly and you can use it again. I encourage it. But isn't it there's something really nice about getting a gift that's beautifully wrapped and that has, I don't know, just it that you can tell has been personalized and there's been thought put into it. I do love getting those. I just struggle with giving those. <laughs> Let's yeah. get into some of the uh, culture around Christmas. You heard Megan mention the film Elf which still blows me away. Uh, it turned 20 this year. 20, 20 years. 20 yeah. years old, Elf now. So I don't know if that falls into the cl like Christmas classic category or somewhere in the middle between, say, White Christmas and the modern uh, Hallmark holiday films that are all over the airwaves, including, by the way, this weekend, An Ice Palace Romance, my uh, cousin's movie that's coming out, An Ice Palace Romance with Marcus Rosner and Joey Coleman. Uh, check it out this weekend. It's going to be uh, very good. Jenny, where are you at on uh, Christmas movies? I will not speak to the Hallmark movies. I do not want to upset anybody. But for me, I think these are classics. Uh, the I have a short list of things that my husband and I watch each year and whoever happens to be around that year. We do definitely... National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which came out in 1989. So I'm pretty sure like that's a classic now, right? That's up there debatable whether it's a christmas movie or not but i'm always throwing die hard in there okay <laughs> every i've got to watch die hard every year um we also play the die hard board game so home alone always creeps up yeah we, good one. 1990 again it's another classic usually we catch this one on tv and lastly we always 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 make room for the trailer park boys christmas special <laughs> <laughs> the good the good Nova Scotians that you are. As a good Nova it, Scotian. It is you... heartwarming. My husband, sorry, Eve, he cries every time. Oh. It is so heartwarming and it's really, really nice when you get to the um when you get to the 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 heart of the of the story. So um we always have watched those and then yeah, otherwise it's there's a few other um honorable mentions, but we don't go too old school. I think those are classics though now, right? I would, I, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, 20 years, I'm not sure if I can call you a classic yet, but as soon as you get into that 30-year category, if you if you were made before Nirvana, put out Nevermind, you're officially now a, a classic film. Uh, Megan, what about you? Well, where, where, are you, where are you standing on uh, the Christmas flicks? So I didn't grow up with Christmas movies as a big thing. Uh, so it was really something that I more discovered as an adult. Um, so I've seen... National Lapoon's Christmas Vacation once. 
like I like so I yeah like I just like I'm I only seen Home Alone once that type of thing so but my favorite one is one that we used to watch as a family my mom taped it off of like TV and it was on a VHS labeled with a piece of masking tape it's (laughs) Winnie the Pooh and Christmas 2 have you guys seen the Winnie the Pooh Christmas special I don't I don't think so no Look it up on YouTube. It's truly heartwarming. It actually makes me cry. And I've watched it almost every year since I was a very young child. Uh, so that, that one, like, we would watch it every year on our VHS, fast-forwarding through commercials. Like, that. that's what we did. So that one I'm a big fan of. Um, I am a fan of the animated Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Oh, yes. Dress the animation. Yeah um and then uh charlie brown christmas that is my favorite christmas special we own a hard copy of that my parents do because my dad is a big peanuts fan uh but yeah i guess i just like cartoons at christmas yeah no all those answers are good in the cartoon world also a big fan of the garfield christmas special love 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 the garfield christmas special but i will say i will tell you I've, i've been sucked into this holiday this hallmark holiday vein or sort of the knockoff hallmark holiday vein of films i've i've had a few a thrust upon me in my life mm-hmm. not bad get a good giggle here and there heartwarming people like it and typically uh, the men are very handsome and the women are good looking are. so you know uh, something worth objectifying around christmas that's always good uh okay one last question here guys jenny you and i will talk about food probably after the holidays but let's finish on music i was just saying to laura bain in the first hour of the show that i put on the louis armstrong and ella fitzgerald christmas album uh last night my first official hitting play of christmas music i love all of ella and louis christmas songs they're all just spectacular that's always going to be the first album that i reach for jenny what's the first album you're reaching for when you want that christmas music hit it's not an album and this is perhaps a little bit off the beaten path but when we are getting festive christmas eve we're getting people together for games and whatnot we actually go to spotify and put on a hip-hop christmas playlist oh right on hip-hop christmas and there's one called i don't know if i can even say this there's one called crunk miss um (laughs) and they are just they just will liven you up they will put you in the spirit there's there's everything from uh you know run dmc snoop dog run the jewels it's got everything and then another little thing that i look forward to is a certain podcast episode comes out every year uh they do it's called the modcast christmas episode and it is again it's a podcast and they feature christmas and holiday music that's in the punk rock garage sort of holiday genre and it's a lot of stuff that you don't really expect so it's it's you know a nice divergence from all of the songs that we've heard 1000 times already this december <laughs> i like that you know megan uh, jenny and i just focused a little bit on pop music obviously mm-hmm. uh, growing up in the church i spent a lot of time listening to a lot of hymns at christmas as well like oh come all ye faithful it's like one of my personal favorites like love love okay. love that song but where are you landing uh, in regards to in, to the music around the holiday season yeah, so also, like, it's someone who grew up in the church, goes to church. Um, I grew up more with that. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I've decided, is my favorite. I, for many years, I didn't know what my favorite Christmas carol was, and it changes every year. I also do not like Oh Holy Night. That is my hot take. Don't like it. Too like We don't have enough time to get into that here. Um, but Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that's my favorite. Um, this year, my first album was going for the country flavor. It is Paul Brandt's Christmas album, The Gift. 
And oh. Paul Brandt did a cover of the song Convoy several years ago. That was a big hit for him. But then he rewrote it and did a Christmas version called Christmas Convoy, which to me is just delightful that somebody wrote a song about like <laughs> the Grinch trying to stop Santa and Frosty. Like something about that makes me really happy. If you want a more serious but still fun tone, I would recommend going back to like my Christian punk rock roots. Uh, Reliant K's album, Let It Snow, Let It Reindeer is a super funny title. Um, and also has some like, really super funny songs, but this is very serious Christmas songs. So I feel like it captures all the emotions at Christmas. And if you want to be sad, the song I discovered this year, and I know it's been out for a few years, is Casey Musgraves' Christmas Always Makes Me Cry. Aww. It's just sweet. Yeah, and Christmas does best. sometimes make you cry. And that's okay. And that's okay. So, you know. All the feelings. Yeah, K Casey Musgroves is like incredible, like incredible, incredible singer, like great guitarist. Okay, uh, on the way out here, guys, I want to tell you a Christmas joke. This is uh, Viking lore. Rudolph the Red looked out the window and said to his wife, it looks like it's going to rain outside. And his wife said, how do you know that, Rudolph? And he goes, Rudolph the Red knows reindeer. Um... Megan, have a lovely, have a lovely Christmas with the family. You too, Dave. I keep working on those jokes. I'll keep working on the dad jokes. At least that one's appropriate for uh, air. Uh, Jenny, have a lovely holidays with the family. Talk to you in 2024. Same to you. That is Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Megan Gilmore is a reporter for Canadian Affairs. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Rumya later this afternoon. And maybe there'll be time for a round table. Only time will tell. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV and in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Kelly and Ramya are hitting the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV this afternoon. Ramya Emuthan can tell you what's coming up on the show today. Good morning, Ramya. Good morning, I sure can. We're uh, talking about Star Wars because they're planning to translate that original 1977 um film into the Ojibwe language. So Corinne Van Dusen is going to tell us more on our entertainment update. Mm. Also, we have... I know, it's very interesting. Uh, also, Buzz with Mark or Fire with Phoenix or all these other things that we've come up with. Fire you. stories with Mark Phoenix. <laughs> Phoenix's fire stories. Also, when you weren't here, Alex said hot takes with Phoenix as like just a you know subtle way. That works. Anyways, yeah. on the buzz, mm -hmm. we're talking about brain implants. There are certain ones of certain studies that have made huge differences for people with traumatic brain injuries. So we want to get into that as well. You know, when we were branding the show Now with Dave Brown, I fought hard against the name and I had two suggestions. One really? of them was Hot Cakes and Hot Takes with Dave <laughs> Brown, but that was shouted down in the meeting, as was Fifty Shades of Dave. That was also shouted down in the these meeting. These were real suggestions. These were, these were legitimate suggestions. It, it should be on the record somewhere that I, that I claimed I wanted to do these <laughs> things. Okay, I have badly mismanaged the broadcast clock today. There's only about two and a half minutes left until we hit the hard network out. Elizabeth Moeller, 
Sarah, you brought a topic here via the email chain that I think is at least worth a dipping the toe in the water of before we do a full-blown conversation on this tomorrow. So here's the core question. The holiday season is a very cluttery time of season. Elizabeth, give the glimpse into your apartment. How are you holding up with clutter ahead of Christmas? Oh, yeah, it, there's clutter. Um, there's clutter physically, and there's a lot of digital clutter as I get e-card after e-card and e-gift certificate after e-gift certificate and go, where did I put that Starbucks gift card? There's there's a lot of clutter, and I struggle with the polite I should keep this because Dave Brown gave it to me. And if Dave <laughs> Brown comes to visit and he doesn't see his little ornament, he will be deeply hurt. There will be he will take umbrage to the fact that I threw out that ornament. So I struggle. Just don't with, invite him over, Elizabeth. Well, yeah, that, that's uh, the key. That <laughs> that's, what, that's, what, that's, what, that's what a lot of my friends do. They just don't invite me over. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's manageable, but I I struggle with sort of you know the 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 putting out of things that I don't really want but feel mm. obligated to keep to keep Dave. Rumya, if I were to put this diplomatically, I would call myself a pack rat. If I was to be oh. a little bit meaner to myself, I would call myself a hoarder. So oh. this time of year gets extra cluttery for me. Yeah. How are you <laughs> with the clutter this time of year? Um, guys, I just can't relate. I'm serious. I'm decluttering my mom's house. I've expanded from uh, <laughs> wow. dealing with my own life. I'm like, I am set. Who needs me? I am the declutterer of all declutterers. I have a neighbor who uh, would politely put themselves as pack rats, and I'm telling you, I'm ready to declutter their house too for free, like volunteerism, um, because Excellent. I'm a minimalist. I have nothing. And I've also, it, this is because, though, it's credit to having moved so much. Like in the last 10 years, I've moved at least four times. And so I, I just move and drop stuff. I do have sentimentality for certain things, especially gifts, but they can fit in a box. It is my ottoman. Okay. All right. I yeah. like this. Tips. I, I got lots of tips. Okay. So that's what I was going to say. Because there's only a minute left before we're out of here today, let's not start jumping into tips. But Ramya, tomorrow, we're going to make mm -hmm. you give this stuff away for free on national TV. Absolutely. So, so get ready. Get ready. We're going to reset the table, and you're going to give this stuff away for free. This is why I came to media, okay? This is, this why is my calling. <laughs> 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 decoloring. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Okay, so that's going to happen at about 10.45 a.m. Eastern time tomorrow. <laughs> Ramya is going to tell you how to declutter your house. Ramya, thank you. Have a lovely day. You too, Dave. Elizabeth, thank you for bringing this topic. I know we just dipped our toe. Looking forward to plunging in tomorrow. Plunging into that declutter atmosphere. Yeah, going to be swimming and decluttering with Ramya and Elizabeth, and maybe Nazreen. Until then, I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.